What a great, great hymn. I think one of the best hymns to come to us in recent years is that hymn. Because that is, brothers and sisters, that is where we live. Being held fast by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't excite you, you need to check your pulse. That is a great truth. It's a truth that's echoed throughout the book, the small, short letter of Jude. I invite you there with me this morning. The letter of Jude. <clears throat> We're looking this morning at verses 1 and 2, the foundation for defenders of the faith. How, how do we, how is it possible that we could be a defender? How could it be, first of all, that we are recipients of this great faith? Secondly, how can we possibly defend such a great faith this morning and yet that is what we are called to let me read the first three verses and then we will look at the first two jude a bondservant of jesus christ and brother of james to those who are the called beloved in god the father kept for jesus christ May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write it to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Gracious Father, we, we are humbled, we are overwhelmed by your grace that we have been called into this faith that Jude wanted to write to us about, that he wanted his readers to understand more about, to be rejoicing in. We, we're humbled by that, and, and even more so that we would be called to stand upon and for this faith. It is not only that our salvation is impossible In and of ourselves, it is also impossible to defend in and of ourselves. And so, Father, this morning, as You call us to this battle, as You lead us into the fray, equip us now in the armory. Cause us to put on the full armor of the Gospel of God knowing that it is rooted and grounded in who You are and what You have done for us so that we might stand firm and contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints in every place and in every age. We pray that You would do this for Your own glory and Your own sake. Amen. Since the Garden of Eden, brothers and sisters, the people of God have faced an onslaught of error. Error has been present almost since the very beginning. It did not take Satan long to come and to tempt our forefather, Adam and Eve, with a slide into error. At those times, there are attacks that are full frontal assaults upon non-negotiable truths, such as what Satan offered in the gospel, or I'm sorry, in the book of Genesis. There are times when he comes directly and, and unashamedly and unabashedly and 
presents error to us in order that it might be believed. But far more numerous in times are the times that he comes in a Trojan horse, concealing the attack, concealing the cancer that is within and that once inside wreaks ever-continuing havoc and carnage upon not only the people of God, but the world around them. And so because of this, you and I, both of us, have always had a responsibility to to guard the truth, to promote the truth, to contend and uh, make defense of the truth, which is the entirety of God's Word. We're called to do that. But there are times also when we are more specifically called to guard the truth in such a way that we guard against the false teachers themselves. Now, if refuting error is seen as out of fashion today, in other words, naming sin to be sin or wrong to be wrong, if that is seemed seemingly out of fashion and uh, out of vogue and somehow uncultured and uh, beneath us, and certainly opposing and naming false teachers is even more so. It's barely tolerable that too many people, and even in the church today, don't like it when you refute error, but when you begin to defend or begin to confront the, 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 the persons themselves, it grows even more strained and tenuous. It's the erroneous notion that God is only angry with the substance of the teaching, but would never be angry with the teacher themselves. After all, God loves the sinner, but hates the sin we've been told. Except where Scripture says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And so those things are hard to flesh out in Scripture in such a way that would cause us to Simply keep our mouth shut and not contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. No, God is not only angry with the content of false teaching, He is angry with the teacher who promotes such false teaching and damns the souls of those who follow them. Perhaps some might think that we should only mildly oppose the substance while maintaining a collegial spirit and simply viewing false teachers as those with a difference of viewpoint. Rather than saying that it is wrong and that we are not on the same team and that we do preach a different gospel. At times that is necessary in the spirit of godly leadership. We must rise up as Christians and not only be vocal about the content, but at times even defending against the people themselves. Again, I understand that that is not a popular message today. That's not a popular stance or framework of reference and yet at times it becomes necessary the spirit of godly leadership will stand up and will oppose not only the false teaching but the false prophets notice jesus own words in matthew chapter 7 beginning in verse 15 jesus says this now uh, this isn't paul it's not peter and it's not jude in case some would want to say hey we only believe the words of jesus in scripture have you heard that Well, that other stuff, you know, but what Jesus spoke, that was all love and, you know, tolerance and all this. Jesus never 
Matthew 7, 15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from the thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. And a tree cannot produce bad a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. See, Jesus not only confronts the error, he confronts the people promoting the error. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, this verse is uh, one of the most terrifying verses in all of Scripture. The Apostle Paul is making his way to Rome. He is, he is going to be executed. He knows he's not long for this world. And he stops by to see the, the, the Ephesian elders one last time. And in Acts 20, verse 28, speaking to the elders. Did you hear what I said? He's speaking to who? The elders. Not the church at large, not the broader town at large, but to the elders themselves. And he says this, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. The elders. Brothers and sisters. The elders. Those who are supposed to be leading. And they will not spare the flock, Paul says. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears it's not a joyous thing paul's doing is a heartbreaking thing he writes to timothy in second timothy chapter three for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth how sad just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind reject, uh, rejected in regard to the faith. Not like the people Jude writes to who are in the faith. These people have been rejected out of the faith because of their teaching. But they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all. Just as Janus and Jambres follow, folly was also. Brothers and sisters, as we look at church history, church history is not only full of the heroes we love, the men who stood for the faith, the, the, the history of the church is also equally littered with heretics who have taught something that is opposite of the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And that is a tragic reality. Where the churches remain faithful and healthy, heretics are easily just dispatched, just like Paul says to Timothy. Hey, as long as you are teaching and nourishing the church and sound doctrine on sound words, the church will see the folly of these people. They'll become obvious what they are as the truth is promoted. Where the church is healthy, heretics are dispatched and Where the church is not healthy, 
the heretics rise up and the church is dispatched. That's a terrifying thought. In short, I guess we could say it this way. If we were listening to Jude and Paul, if we could sit down and talk with him and with Jesus, they would tell us that that truth and error cannot coexist. There is no middle ground. It is either truth or it's error. And you cannot mix error and truth and expect to come out with truth that saves. Truth and error must necessarily be divided. One will... Be victorious to the demise of the other. They cannot and will not ever simply coexist. And yet that's a major mantra, isn't it, of our culture today? Just coexist. You're right. I'm right. We're all right. Let's just get along. That's not the spirit of the New Testament, brothers and sisters. That's not what loving people do. Loving people don't uh, just sit there and say, you know, you may or you may not have cancer, but let's just be happy. What do we say? There's a cancer in your body. It's got to be cut out. And the quicker, the better. And the more thorough, the better. Let's get you healthy. So Jude is essentially doing that in the church of his day and is exhorting us to do the same thing. And as the people of God, whether it's Adam and Eve or, or the church in Paul's day or Jude's day, we must be ever ready to rise up and oppose error with truth. So Christian, let me ask you a question this morning. Will you rise up armed with truth in order to oppose error and promote truth? And it's for this purpose that this small little letter, just 25 verses long, comes to us. Only two letters in the New Testament are shorter. Philemon and 3 John. And for this purpose, the God gives us this letter, Jude, that the half-brother of Jesus... Now, this is an interesting uh, take as we look at Judas uh, this morning as a person. It's interesting um, who he is, and it matters. He's the half-brother of Jesus. But notice he doesn't ever mention that. He doesn't claim that as some type of you know, badge of honor that he's wearing. Oh, hey, yeah, by the way, I'm Jesus' brother. He's a humble man. And that, that's a spirit that we must all approach this type of charge with. We don't oppose truth with arrogance. I mean, error with arrogance. We oppose error with humility, lest we ourselves fall into it. And so Jude appears to be a very humble man, like salt. He's given to preserve the faith. No doubt many despise his defensive stance. I... I, I Cannot think, I know men have, and I have listened to men exegete this book and preach through this book, but I am telling you personally, in my life, I was never in a church where this book was preached. And I think it's because it's seen as too negative, too controversial, too, you know, whatever, non-collegial. The defensive stance, the combative nature, though, of truth against heresy must be promoted. Jude says that, and it must be done so with a spirit of humility. If we want to be faithful, brothers and sisters, we must be like Jude, a humble man who takes up the mantle of being a defender and contender for the faith once for all delivered to us. Not because we enjoy conflict. Nobody in, I don't like conflict, I hate it. You shouldn't like it either. 
But we also shouldn't be afraid of it when it's necessary and when it's uh, called upon for us to stand up and defend the truth. Because we love God's glory and we love uh, His honor more than we love our comfort and the things that we like or the ways that will be perceived. A humble man not only doesn't promote himself as being something, a humble man also doesn't mind doing the, the most uh, disgusting and lowly of tasks. He doesn't mind soiling his hands in battle in this particular case because it is not for himself, but it is for the honor and the glory of the one who sent him that he is going to do this. Now, little is known about the letter itself. We don't know exactly who it was written to. We don't know exactly when it was written like some other books. We have a good idea that it was written sometime around the year A.D. 70. Because we read in Second Peter chapter 3 that Peter is warning that false teachers were going to come. And we know that that letter was roughly around 69 to the early part of 70 A.D. But by the time Jude writes his letter, guess what? They're not coming, they're here. The wolves are at the gate. And so Jude is writing having to defend against them. He's not merely warning that they will come. In all likelihood, the people that Jude is writing against are the Gnostic false teachers, people that rose up in Peter's day, and I would say to you today that they are still with us even to this day, taking on various forms and various ideologies that are drenched in Gnosticism, even as we talked in the first hour about wokeism and wokeness. That is a branch of Gnostic heresy in so many ways. And so it's probably Gnostic false teachers as John had to contend with in his three epistles towards the end of the New Testament. But it was a, a serious and prevailing threat in Peter's or in Jude's day. Jude mentions that he is uh, not only the, the, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, but he's the brother of James. He's the brother of James. Uh, we know James to be, the, the uh, again, a half-brother of Jesus Christ himself. And so Jude has a pedigree. He has an exposure to men who were great leaders. Jesus himself and his own brother being the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And so he has a great wealth of legacy to draw upon for this battle. And he begins by reminding us that we are at war. Brothers and sisters, this morning, July 11th, 2021, we are at war. We're at war with the forces of evil and sin and Satan, just as we have been since the fall of Adam and Eve. We are still at war this morning, and we must take preparation for that seriously. And so Jude gives us several foundations this morning as we look at preparing to defend the faith. Preparing to defend the faith. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning that these foundations are not things we possess in terms of what we know. They are things we possess in terms of what we are and who we are. It's, it would be foolish to throw someone into battle without training them. It would be foolish to throw someone into a conflict of this magnitude and this nature without securing their identity. That's why in boot camp, especially the Marine Corps, you, you never refer to yourself as a Marine until you have 
graduated and finished the crucible and have the eagle globe and anchor fastened to your collar. You're only a recruit. But one of the things that makes a Marine potent and powerful as he deploys into battle is the knowledge of who he is and who he belongs to and who those around him are and who they belong to. And there is a a cohesiveness about that understanding. And Jude does the same thing here. He does not just hand you a weapon. He arms you first with the knowledge of who you are. Notice how he does that. He does that, first of all, by his own example. He says, Jude, a bondservant, a slave to Jesus Christ. How is it that we have a foundation to defend the truth in our day, brothers and sisters? The error is real. The consequences are immeasurable and immense. So how do we prepare ourselves for the onslaught of error in our day, for our lives, for for our posterity's sake? We do so humbly as a slave to Jesus Christ. Jude doesn't stand up and say, now listen, I'm Jude. I'm the half-brother of Jesus. You need to listen to me. Do you know who I am? You need, you need to know, what does Jude say? Based on this, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. That, that humility has driven me to that point. I am, I am nobody in and of myself. I, I have no personal identity. Rather, I'm identified as a slave of Jesus Christ. If we were to take the name Jude and we were to transliterate that into the Hebrew, we get Judah. When we transliterate it into Greek, we get Judas. John MacArthur points out how Ironic it is that God would choose a man to write a book against heresy and heretics that shares the same name with the greatest apostate and heretic of all time, Judas Iscariot. What a humbling thing to say God can use and does use either man for his particular purpose. And so that is a a great humbling effect upon Jude and it ought to be upon us as well this morning. Jude says, listen, more important than who I am according to my bloodline is this, that I am a slave of my master. This is not Jude's native disposition, by the way, nor is it yours or mine. Humility uh, does not come naturally to any of us. Have you noticed that? Humility is not natural. Don't confuse humility with being shy or or something like that. That's not humility. Humility is is an absolute abasement of ourselves. And we know from John chapter 7 and verse 5, Judas wasn't always the humble guy he is here. In John chapter 7 and verse 5, we read this, For not even his brothers were believing him. We we read in Mark's gospel chapter 3 verses 31 through 35, they thought he was crazy. They wanted to just, Jesus, come on. Let's go home and put you to bed. You're you're ill. It was an arrogance that stood up to the truth that Jesus was was preaching. And so, like every believer who's come before and after Jude, there takes a great humbling work of, of the Holy Spirit in our lives to bring us to the point that we can submit to the Lordship of Christ rather than resist it. 
We know Jude resisted it before. We know Jude was arrogant toward the teaching of Jesus before. But here Jude has had a heart change and a life change. And he is identified as a slave of Jesus Christ. How do we defeat error? Humility. Humility. Any man that stands up in his own strength, in his own arrogance, and says, I'm going to take on error. Look at me. Will be the next man that falls. He'll be the next man who is marked by scandal. He'll be the next man who becomes so caustic that he's of no earthly good to the kingdom of God. By the way, the book of Jude telling us to contend earnestly for the faith is not to make us hated, but to make us useful. Because our goal is to persuade people of the truth, not to turn them off to the truth. And so... So that humility is is necessary as a foundation, that willing submission, that utter submission to Christ to, by the way, stand strong for the truth, but to do it in such a way that we don't become the point. The truth remains the point. You see? You see what arrogance can do versus humility in this? By the way, Jesus, uh, Jesus stood for the truth and he confronted error. Next time somebody says to you, Jesus says we shouldn't judge. Remind them, Jesus also took cords and turned tables over and ran people out of the temple. He wasn't opposed, but he never did it in arrogance or pride. It was always to do his father's will that the truth would be known. That's Jude's heart. It ought to be our heart in this battle as well. And if that's not our heart, we need to repent. We need to repent that the Lord might might make us useful in our defense of the truth. Not simply caustic and nasty. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. In other words, to be a slave of the one who called him. That's how Jude views himself. The lordship of Christ over us calls us into battle. We don't go into battle to make a name for ourselves. We go into battle to make a name for him. To make his name glorious. He is the one at war with error. We are merely his foot soldiers. And if we are his slaves, we will readily, as Jude does, confess his authority over us and willingly take up our swords for him. As his cause, not our own. Let me say this. It's also these type of humble people who will actually go and do that. People who think highly of themselves, people who are arrogant, will never defend the truth. Do you know why? They fear what people think about them far too much. The fear of man is a snare. Proverbs 29, 25 says. Those who think more of Christ than they do themselves will not only do it in the right way, but they will be the ones that actually speak up. It's the proud who care more about their reputation than Christ who won't speak up. They've got a reputation to maintain. They have a certain um, status that they need to be viewed in and they can't be seen as being negative or contrary to the spirit of the age. That's not how Jude sees it. If he's a slave of Christ, it doesn't matter what he wants to do. He'll do what Christ calls him to do. And what Christ has called him to do is fight for the truth. Foundation number one, 
humility and being a slave of Christ. Foundation number two, a people called. Jude goes on, he says, to those who are the called. Now, again, as last week's text was, it's been uh, written in such a way. And by the way, when you're translating Greek to English, it doesn't always work out just really smooth and and nice and neat. The languages are different and those sorts of things. And so uh, they tried to smooth it out in the English by putting this little phrase first to those who are called in the Greek. It's simply one word at the very end of the uh, sentence in order to make impact and emphasis. You are the called. You are the chosen. But here in our Bibles, we'll take it in the order that we have it this morning for purpose of continuity and Smoothness of reading. There are times in the Christian life where the battle against the enemies of Christ and the enemies of error are going to be so intense you are going to be immensely discouraged. It's going to be um, discouraging at times. It's going to be sad at times. It's going to be heartbreaking at times. And they will get so intense at times. Brothers and sisters, you've probably experienced this already. You will wonder if you're doing the right thing. Yes, we've all been there because the cost is so high. The fog of war is so real. It will it will seem as am I doing the right thing? Am I wrong? I mean, I'm I think I'm right, but but it just feels so wrong because my best friend of so many years is angry with me now. Or it's cost me this relationship or I've had to to leave this institution because I can't. I can't back what they say anymore. It's heartbreaking. And so there will come a time standing for the truth will be disorienting. And you'll wonder if you're right. And you'll wonder if the battle's right. And you'll wonder about all of these things. And Jude reminds us quite emphatically that we did not choose this life, but rather God chose us for this life. You are called. Notice how Paul words it to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. The one who enlisted him. You didn't go and put yourself there. Someone else put you there. God has enlisted us into his service. This therefore is not our battle. We we are not uh, the ones who walked into this so that we may walk out of this. We are called to this. The word called is the overarching and i I've, i actually believe this is why it comes first in the english because the the, they, the translators understand this is the overarching idea of the whole thing you are the called into this battle it's the overarching most demonstrative word in the entire verse it's actually very interesting it's an adjective and most of the time the the the, the, the keywords in a verse are going to be what verbs or nouns and yet here's an adjective to the call The ones called colors everything else that follows. The calling is the source and the root of everything else that follows it, practically speaking. And because we are the ones called, we can rest assured that we are beloved in the Father and that we're not off our rocker. And that we are on the right path. And we are the ones who will be kept in Jesus Christ until the end of time. Jude says, to those who are the called, the the called ones. 
It's synonymous with the choosing work of God so that we are called in a very specific and undeniable way. John 5.21 For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. John 6.44 No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. That's the call. And I will raise Him up in the last day. I can be confident in this battle. Why? Jesus is the one doing the work. 2 Timothy 1.8 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to His purpose and grace which was granted to us in Jesus Christ from all eternity past. And so this isn't just a mere general invitation. This is the effectual uh, affecting, effective call of God to His Son, Jesus Christ. Jude's saying, that's who you are. Before you go into battle, you need to know why you're actually in here in the first place. Because God put you here. Because God sovereignly determined you needed to be here for whatever reason. It's a compulsory call that cannot be denied. Tom Schreiner says in his commentary on Jude, those whom God calls are powerfully and inevitably brought to faith in Christ Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel. The call of God is extended only to some and is always successful so that all those who are called become believers and are secure there. That's who we are. So brothers and sisters, when we are called to confront a vicious foe and the fog of war becomes thick and we begin to doubt ourselves and and, and the waves of doubt crash over us and we fear we might be lost. Just remember this, you didn't enlist yourself. You didn't call yourself. Therefore, you will not be kept by yourself. God will keep you in Christ Jesus. We can do this. We can fight the battles because we have been called to fight the battles. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We did not come to Christ and we didn't come to this day of battle, this day of March, as the hymn writer might say, in our own strength. We are doing so and we are here and who we are by His effectual call. Jude, like the other New Testament writers, understands this. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. In other words, it wasn't by fleshly means that you arrived into the Lord's army. It's not by human strength or human means that you are here. It is a spiritual calling that you have been called with and equipped with. Our battle that we are called to by Jude is a spiritual battle. But I want you to notice that this calling, this battle has real-world ramifications. And that leads us to the third foundational principle. We are a people beloved. How do we stand? How do we not fall away? How, how is it, brothers and sisters, that we are not going to succumb to the error? Hey, by the way, how is it that our children won't succumb to error? 
How is it that our grandchildren want to come to error? Do you ever, as parents, let's be honest, how many of you are concerned about your children in the days that we live? The battles that we're going to fight. The battles they're going to have to fight. Everyone, if you're not concerned about that, you're not human. Humanly speaking, there are great concerns. But let me tell you how they, like us, will stand. Because if they are in Christ, it's that they've been called there. And if they are called there, they are loved there. And that's why we can live our lives without fear. We can commit them to the Lord and to the Lord's sovereign work in their lives just as it has been in ours and say, you know what? They won't fall either because of these truths of who they are in Christ. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8, the Lord did not set His love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you. Do you hear that? Why are we who we are? Because the Lord loved us. There's no other explanation. We weren't special. And He kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did Israel not fall? Why were they not consumed? Because God loved. Just like He loves us. And our Father will not let us fall. What great assurance. It doesn't matter how hard the battle is. It doesn't matter how, how fiercely it rages. It doesn't matter what they throw. We're loved by God. And because we're loved by God, we will be kept by God. Love and call are often associated with one another. In Scripture, in Hosea 11, verse 1, listen to God reflect upon Israel. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. You hear that? Love, call. Love, call. Our call is rooted in the love of God. And it's no ordinary or general love, but it is a special love that God has only for His own people. Ephesians 1, verses 3-6, through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates His own what? Love toward us in that while we were Yet, sinners, Christ died for us. The love of the Father is a divine and it's a predetermining love that has resulted in their calling in the letter of Jude and in their salvation. As Paul points out in Romans 9, it is a perfect love and it is a work of God, uninfluenced by anything so that what God determines to happen will happen. Romans 9.11, for though the, speaking of Jacob and Esau and the fact that God chose Jacob but not Esau, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that the, God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, 
but because of Him who calls. You see the power of God's love and God's call. Acts 13.48 When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. So God has done the work. God has assembled His army. God, out of sheer love and grace, has called us to this. Notice the, the love spoken of here is in the perfect tense of the verb. It's a perfected love. It has been initiated, accomplished in the past, and it is then secure for all eternity. It has been perfected. I think one of the most moving passages in Scripture is John 17. John 17 is a masterpiece. Jesus is in His high priestly prayer. He is reporting back to the Heavenly Father. Speaking of His mission as being complete. Now notice, in John 17, Jesus hasn't died yet. Jesus hasn't risen yet. But as God, He knows. He is sovereign over all things. So He can speak to it as already accomplished. But it's not just that. He can speak to it as already accomplished because what He came to do was rooted in the unfailing love of God. God can't fail, brothers and sisters. God cannot do anything that fails. Now, if God leaves it up to mankind and He leaves salvation to us and He leaves contending uh, to the truth up to us and it's just all about what we want to do and our choices, guess what? Nothing will ever get done or happen. Because ten out of ten times we will choose sin. We will choose cowardice. We will choose not loving God than than, than loving God. We will hate God. But by God's love and by God's doing, we are who we are. And in John 17, 22-26, let me read that to you. The glory which you have given me, he says to the Father, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Now notice this next phrase. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. Even as you have loved me. Why could Jesus speak of what he was about to do on the cross as being successful and completed? Because it is rooted in the love of God. It could not fail. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me. Where I am so that they may may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Why could Jesus not fail? He is beloved from before the foundation of the world. Verse 25. O righteous Father. Although the world has not known you. Yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. Verse 26. And I have made them known. I have made your name known to them. And will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. How could Jesus not fail? Because it is rooted in the love of God. And the love of God cannot fail, brothers and sisters. It cannot, it will not. This love eternally enacted is the basis for us being able to stand toe to toe with the enemy and not fail. And not fall away. And not be swept away. 
God's love has so been exercised upon you if you have trusted Christ, if you are in Christ. That's Paul's favorite preposition, in. Go back and count all the times Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 1. You are in Christ. You are in Him. You are in the Beloved. Notice that our calling is rooted in that same love. But notice the fourth foundational truth. We are kept in Jesus Christ. We are a people secure. We are loved by the Father. We are called as a result of that love from the Father. And as a result, we are kept in Jesus Christ. You are not keeping yourself. Whoever it was that framed uh, the points of the followers of Calvin in response to Jacob Arminius, framing out what we know as the tulip, I think they got it wrong on the P. It's not the perseverance of the saints, it's the preservation of the saints. We are the ones being kept. We will not be allowed to fall. Why? We are being kept in Christ. This is the bedrock of our assurance. The bedrock of our assurance is not the prayer that we prayed. It's not the deeds that we do. It isn't the works that we continue to do. It's not the contending for faith that we we, uh, engage in. It is this, we are kept in. In and for Jesus Christ. We are kept by Him and for Him. John 6.39, this is the will of Him who... Listen to this. Listen to this. This is the will of Him who sent me. No, no. Stop and think about that for a moment. Who is the Him? God Himself. What is the will of God? Is the will of God defeatable? Is it mutable? Can it change? No. So this is the will then of God, that of all those He has given me, I lose nothing. You know why, Christian, you will endure until the end? Because God the Father gave you to the Son, and the Son says, of all that He gave me, I don't lose anything. Nothing. Nothing is lost. It's not even diminished. In John 18, 9, to fulfill the words which you spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Jesus will not lose us. Not ever. If the truth that the one who raised from the dead is the same one who is keeping you in your salvation, if that's not enough to assure you, Nothing will ever assure you. But as soldiers of Christ, we can be assured knowing that we are kept in Him. We cannot be lost. The word kept literally means to retain in custody. To keep watch over. To guard something. Don't don't get me wrong. Satan is going to throw everything, including the kitchen sink at us. It is going to be evil. It is going to be dirty. It is going to be fierce. It is going to be wretched. And we see it all around us today. But brothers and sisters know this. Jude just drops a bomb of theological shock and awe. And he says, Christ is keeping you. Let Satan roar. Let him do his worst. You are kept by Christ. Satan is not sovereign. Christ is. So just keep that in the right order, people. I love what Martin Luther said. The devil is God's devil. When God yanks the chain, the devil's coming. The devil does nothing in his own strength. He is not sovereign. 
Christ is. Therefore, Jude wants to remind us we are being kept in Christ, retained in His custody. Just as glorious as our calling is, so is our keeping. We go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 that we just finished. Peter also begins the foundation for his letter to his people in the same way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Glory to the risen Christ. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one, not, not Satan, not anybody. My Father who has given them to me. Do you see that? The Father owns us by right of a call. We are then His to give. He gives us to Christ My Father who did that is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. You know, Jude has got the army assembled as it were and he's giving them a pep talk before they go to war. And he's saying, you can't lose. You can't be lost. Go and do battle. And that, that in essence, is the, the very close of his letter. Look at Jude 24 and 25. This is how he closes the letter. He begins it with the foundation. He closes it with the reality. Now to him who is able. That's not potential. That's actual. The one who will keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now, and forever. Amen. You see where Jude starts? Do you see where he ends? We're secure, brothers and sisters. John MacArthur makes this statement in his commentary on Jude. Those who believe salvation can be lost should be consistent and be reluctant to engage deadly error at close quarters. In other words, if you, if, you, if you think you can lose your salvation, if somehow you think you, you can be taken away out of God's sovereign hand, then you should at least be consistent and bow out now and quit calling yourself a Christian according to Jude's terms. Be consistent, be reluctant to engage in deadly error at close quarters. Jude began his letter by removing that needless fear. Believers are kept. We are kept. We are secure. Brothers and sisters, but let me tell you something. And here's where I guess the rubber really meets the road for us. If our view of salvation is not rooted in the sovereign work of God, then we will fear. There is place for anxiety. There is place for uh, instability. There is place for compromise. There is place for retreat because we won't stand up with the boldness required. We will not face our enemies. We'll do whatever it takes to, to be comfortable or to feel as though we're preserved rather than just going out and contending for the faith. Perhaps the lack of willingness to stand and contend for the faith in our day 
is that they don't actually possess a faith that can be defended. Perhaps it's a faith that that can't really be defended, so why try? Just go along to get along. But this faith, only this faith begun and kept by God's sheer sovereign power will endure, and not only will endure, it will cause those who are in it to engage. Anything less is destined to fail. And notice the outcome quickly in verse 2. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Life in the midst of a battle can become hopeless, especially when it's a sustained battle. Here in a couple of months, Lord willing, we're going to go on vacation. We're going to drive through the city of Vicksburg, Mississippi. If you know anything about the Battle of Vicksburg, Mississippi, it was a sustained, drawn-out campaign in which the city was, uh, was surrounded and, and uh, starvation among the civilian population set in. And it was just a horrific battle. And they eventually surrendered because they were just they were worn down from the sustained battle. You know, we've grown accustomed in our life, haven't we, to wars that are resolved quickly or at least relatively quickly. There there, there are some of you who can remember at least three wars that have been begun and ended in your lifetime, but do you realize in the ancient world that wasn't common? Wars lasted oftentimes for generations. The war between England and France lasted over a hundred years. We're talking great-grandparents, grandparents, children and their children all living in the same war. Warfare that is sustained can become very burdensome and make its people feel hopeless. Bill turns 80 today. Bill could, could, could tell you and was alive for, to see the resolution of four wars. We need to understand this, brothers and sisters, that the spiritual battles we face will never be resolved in our lifetime. That's the reality. We're not going to beat Satan in our lifetime. Only Jesus will do that in His perfect timing. And so we need the byproducts that that are are mentioned in verse 2 as a result of verse 1 because God has called us, because we are kept in the Father, or in the Son, we have mercy, peace, and love multiplied to us. Mercy from God in the terms of its efficacy, realization of its power. We have received the mercy of God that we didn't deserve. Peace in the midst of war. That's a gift only God can give. A gift only God can give. The world around us is characterized by an utter lack of peace. But notice what Jude says, you grow in peace. You're in the midst of a war. How ironic, how otherworldly, how counterintuitive is Jude's word. You increase in peace even though you're in war? A sustained war? Yes. What does Jesus say to the disciples in John chapter 14? Peace I leave with you. Does anybody know what happened shortly after that? Literally all hell breaks loose for Christians. 
Their life didn't become easier. It became harder. They were hunted down. They were scattered out. They were accused of all number of things. The world got immensely difficult. And yet Jesus says, I'm leaving you peace as my parting gift. How is it? Because they were called by the Father, loved by the Father, kept in the Son. And Jesus says, as, with that as the foundation, you can have peace. doesn't matter what the external circumstances are. You are right with me. You belong to me. You cannot be lost. Therefore, Jesus ends this way, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Hey, let's go to war. Let's go to war. We are loved by the Father. We are called by the Father. We are kept in the Son. We can have growing peace even though the battle rages. Let's go! Go with a smile on our face. Rooted in that great love that Jude concludes with. The love of God for His chosen people is never without means. That means, brothers and sisters, God demonstrated His love in the death of His Son on your behalf Why? Because God was previously at war with you because you are a sinner. But God sent His Son that He might be at peace with you. So that if you believe in His Son, if you repent of your sins and trust His Son, you are now not estranged from God. You are made right with God. Reconciled to God. And you can stand with the greatest of hope in the most dire of circumstances, humanly speaking, and know that you are secure. If you've not trusted Christ in that way, I encourage you, I exhort you in the strongest way possible. I plead with you this morning, cast your sins upon Him. Let Him pay for your sins so that you're right with God and you can experience the love of God in Christ so that you can stand against error. Whatever it is, you can have a, your eternity and your hope secured in Christ. Believer who have done that, rest in Him. And once you do, contend for the faith. Because you are contending for the very message that saved you. So that others may hear it and be saved as well. Let's pray. Father, use this foundation, these truths, and these first two verses to cause those whom you have called and saved already to be assured, to be filled with peace, to stand in this evil day. Father, if there's some here this morning that have not cast their sins upon Your Son, they are still carrying those sins. They are still liable for those sins. They are still guilty of those sins. May today be the day that they cast those upon Christ and let Him forgive those and let Him deal with those by faith that their life might be transformed and different. They might know what it is to have the mercy and the peace and the love of God as their foundation. Father, may we never neglect to contend for the faith because it is this faith alone that saves. And if we really love, we won't be silent, we'll be vocal. Because it is this same faith that will save and produce this in others. But Father, cause us to know that if we are to compromise and if we are to be silent and if we are to to retreat, then 
there will be no hope. There will be no message proclaimed. And so, Father, while we know You are sovereign, we also know that You are sovereign over the means. You've chosen the means as well. And the means is that Your people would speak up and speak out and defend the truth because it alone saves. And so help us to be loving people by using our voices to proclaim Your Word. Give us courage. Give us confidence in who we are. And continue to equip us through the study of this book. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.